This week on Twin Geek S37, it's a regular Mexican standoff over Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. We face existential dread over the new Cats trailer. Be prepared for Lion King in the box office. We have breaking news about Godzilla on Criterion. The Twin Geek Cast theme is provided by AndrewNapierMusic.com. Oh yeah. Um Which I like. Did you check out the podcast that I showed you by the way? The Joe Dante one? Yeah. I have it subscribed, but I haven't listened. Oh, okay, you should, especially since you're watching through Friedkin. They got a great episode they did with Friedkin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was um, entertaining. And he shits I don't on Exorcist two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh no. Oh Exorcist two, okay. Yeah, yeah. Not not the original. The original's one of my favorite horror movies. It it's so well constructed. Well, most people's, yeah. I mean, it is it is fantastic. When I watched it last year again for Halloween, you know, I, I marveled at it still. I didn't give it quite the perfect score. I felt I felt obliged to, but that was still when I was kind of being generous with scores. I gave it a nine still, though. I mean, nine makes sense. It's a it's an instant ten for me, and it's it's always it's, been. I don't think it can be less than nine, especially just with how how well it's done. I just don't like personally connect with it as much you know i feel a little emotionally distant from it at times i feel good about this freaking watch because there's there's like uh the obvious stuff right and then there's some really interesting weird stuff mixed in there yeah well i think he's a really interesting director and i i you know interesting and just a personality as well i think i gravitate towards those kind of interesting personality directors well he reminds me of Ford and how abrasive he is in interviews and such <laughs> which i, I love <laughs> i love the one he did with the uh, what's the drive director's what, name reffing, uh, nicholas winding reffing. reffing yeah oh i was gonna bring that up because it gets brought up every time like they they joked about it on that podcast too where we, you know like people just insight he's like to... uh, <laughs> get this man a doctor he he yeah. you know he's talking about he thinks he's gonna be like citizen kane but uh, how will Drive actually be remembered in 30 years? Okay, when you were mentioning 2001, Citizen Kane, you forgot to add Drive. We'll let that slip. We won't know about Drive for another 30 years. 30 seconds. Wh whether it lives or dies. I'm talking about films. Uh, 2001 was made in 1968. I made this film about four years ago, so it's about Four time. years is a zip. It's not even a blip. It's not a, a pimple on, on the asshole of humanity, four years. But 2001 was made in 1968 and holds up like gangbusters. It's better than all this other similar crap. And Citizen Kane was made in 1941. We know that. My point and is it lives. Okay. Reference like, oh, you know, it's it's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie, but it's not it's not dry. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, it's not like it's it on the ass of Kane. You know, uh, he he doesn't mm -hmm. give a shit at all. I can't I can't tell if Riffing is like trolling him or if he's literally that pompous or it might be both. <laughs> I think I think it's hard to say if both are are being that way. I feel like they both might have a little bit of the same thing in them. I think uh, I don't I don't know if um. Friedkin's necessarily pompous about his himself. Like mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't, he doesn't come across like that. But he's definitely extremely opinionated, you know. And it's like it's his opinion or it's dog shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I like those hardcore guys, especially the seventy guys. Have a lot of that persona. Like you, you look at especially like Friedkin and um, Schrader and their relationship. Mm -hmm. 
uh, it, and it's like who was it like Schrader was talking about a couple weeks ago that he is uh, he was like disowning like one of his partners for the seven days like all these guys right. that came from oh like, diploma he was diploma. shitting on diploma <laughs> yeah. all these guys That's that came right. from like the kale the kale school of critical thought are so easy right. to dismiss each other. It was weird, but that, that did remind me of something weird because when I was watching Inglorious Bastards last night, I don't know if you did you watch did you rewatch it this yeah, last I did. time? Okay, because I I thought it was weird because there was that moment there was like that montage where the the main woman I don't remember her character name um, Von Hammerstein that was it mm-hmm. uh, she was getting ready for it and I heard the the David Bowie music for for camp people coming <laughs> on I'm like what the fuck is this doing here? <laughs> it was just so bizarrely out of place. And I'm like, like I, I'm sure Tarantino just picked it because there's a lyric about putting out fire with gasoline and that's what the theater thing is building up to. Yeah. It was just so weird. But I like, I, I wasn't totally against it because I'm like, I kind of get the connection here with her kind of getting this menacing cat people kind of vibe going on. But it's just bizarrely out of place to this david bowie song from a 1985 paul schrader film <laughs> and i feel like that's kind of the thing that tarantino does i'm like why did he choose this influence here it's not like it's considered well there's a lot of weird things i found in glory path like the whole beginning is scored with you know old morricone yeah from for a few dollars more i'm like <laughs> the, this is a this the, is not a western <laughs> the beginning is a western like if you look very closely at like the framing and how the americone is used it's it's a totally a western for at least like it, 20 minutes it is. I mean, they have a bit of the Ford shots in it as well. Like, they even imitate the Searcher's doorway shot in it, so I can see how it's kind of, you know, a... Yeah, totally. They're taking off all of the uh, Ford and those influences. It's so obvious he wants to be making a Western by that point. Right. Well, that's the thing, and I noticed that. You noticed that in Kill Bill, you know, films as well throughout, and even a bit of Death Proof, he got a little bit of him. It's like, man, Tarantino just really, really wants to make a Western, and <laughs> he, he obviously he didn't get it out of his system with one film. He had to do two. And, uh, and I'm bet- I think that'll and three, work out. T- 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 yeah, I guess all the Western stuff in you know once upon a time in Hollywood too. He just can't get away from it. I mean, I guess you go like Kill Bill Volume Two, Inglorious Bastards, Hollywood, Django, Hateful Eight. He has Western but themes. Throw in uh, From Dust Till Dawn as well. Yeah. It's like a you know Mexican Western there. Well, he's always said. Well, occasionally he said that The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is his favorite of all time, which leads into our uh, uh, different film that we're covering said- today. Well, I believe he's said Rio Bravo as well. You know, he's a yeah. big Hawks fan. So, but obviously, huge Western influence. But, uh, yeah, you know, definitely he's got the Leone influence. And we'll be covering uh, Once Upon a Time in the West today, once we get uh, past uh, some of our intro business. Yeah, I just want I want to give a little bit up front here, is that I have my coffee with me this morning, because yeah. uh, I was busy, and my fiance made me coffee, and I don't want her to go out there and see that I didn't drink any of her delicious <laughs> coffee. Okay. So I'm going to be slurping on it here throughout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and <laughs> there you go. You have to have the sound of it so they believe you. So the mm-hmm. folks at home know that you really have the coffee. So And, and for my fiancé out there listening, I am drinking the coffee, honey. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, should we go through some of this week's news? I feel like it's been a huge news week. Yeah, um... I'll save like the the big news thing for the box office there, like the box office news for the box office anyway, because that's kind of tied into that. But you yeah. know, there's a bunch of trailers that dropped in the last week here, and I don't even think we'll talk about them all because we'll probably just be shitting on the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's start with cats. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do that. Uh, I I didn't know what to think when I saw that, and, and the internet 
fucking exploded. <laughs> it's good because it took some of the steam off me with like the Sonic trailer because I feel like there's like a worse alternative death. Oh no, everyone went back and were like, oh man, you know, maybe Sonic wasn't that bad, guys. I mean, you know, it looked, looked like they did a good job. I'm confused because nobody's calling for this to be remade, but everyone about Sonic, you know, that's a lot less terrifying. Nobody wanted this in the first place. Like, I remember when the casting news yeah. came out, and I'm like, oh, Judy Dench and Ian McKellen in a Cats musical adaptation? That doesn't sound fun at all. And I don't know a lot I, about musicals, but even the musical people are kind of like, Cats is a, you know, it's more of a minor okay. work. It's not one of the significant, like, uh, critical uh, successes. It's, it's Cat, just very Cats popular. Is, Cats is kind of the dopey child eating glue in the corner of Broadway, you know? Like, we don't like to think about it that much, but, you know, it's there. We kind of have to accept it. <laughs> I mean, it's based on, like, these T.S. Eliot pubs, but they're, like, they're children's. It's it's not a, it's not really refined art or anything to start with. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just such a weird thing to do, and we and I think it also kind of took a lot of the heat off of uh, all the Lion King hate that we were yeah, getting in general. Because we're like, oh no, please give us the photorealistic animals again. I want the actual cats. <laughs> right. We were talking about like wanting things to be expressive, and then what happens if uh, with if humans look like cats? It's not very good. I mean, you get into that little bit of a uh, Mowgli problem as well, but it's kind of even worse here, you know, where they have uh, human faces on the animal bodies, but it just looks like a bunch of CGI furries running around a large set instead here, and it's obviously injected with that, you know, uh, 2010 style of, you know, subvert everything with stupid comedy. And it, it's had the thing that's happened to me twice this week where I'm watching a trailer and Rebel Wilson comes up, and I'm like, oh, I thought maybe this could be fun, but I'm not, I don't know if it's going to be exactly what I want it to be now. Right, uh, what was the other thing that the, she was um, like, I already forgot. It's the, what TD, what is it, the uh, the Hitler movie. Oh, Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, Jojo Rabbit. Film. Yeah, no, you're right, I had that, that was literally my first reaction, I'm like, oh. Rebel Wilson, uh, I was excited for this movie, but now, I don't know. <laughs> the rest of the trailer then, looks okay. No, yeah, because Taika looks great in in JoJo, and he seems having a lot of fun with it, and I'm ready for him to shit all over Nazi culture. We need more of that today. I'm just not ready for the hot Hitler takes on Twitter, because I know they're coming. (laughs) Thankfully, he's a Um, little bit paunchy, and he he has a little bit too much makeup, so I feel like he's hiding just how attractive he is. mm Mm-hmm. No, I think that's uh, Jojo Rabbit's going to be a surprise smash for it, even, even though Rebel Wilson's in it, you know. But I think... cats, I don't know. It looks like it was it was made for that kind of thing because you got like it doesn't just stop with her. You got James Corden and Taylor Swift yeah. in it as well. It's like all these things I don't like, and they're all dressed up as cats. And uh, did you find it sexually confusing? Uh, a, a little. I actually, I, I have a bad thing. I'm gonna say this, um, and we can cut this out if it's too graphic. But at, at one point, when I was engaged in a relationship earlier in the week, I was I was unable to finish because I couldn't stop thinking about cats. <laughs> <laughs> so it was did the trailer bring that back no no just like i just had the images from the trailer stuck in my head oh, and I'm oh. Like, i can't i can't do this <laughs> like oh so i mean this has already caused you trauma like it has it's only been I'm, a week it's just gonna uh, keep following me around it was is a very weird experience to be sexually stinted by a movie trailer I, I don't know if it's like awakened anything new in me. It's a uh, man. I don't know. I, I, 
I can confirm it has not awakened anything in me. It has <laughs> deeply disturbed me. It has done I'm the offended. opposite. I'm considering a class action lawsuit at this point. I think it would be fair because I well, it's also like I don't really have a nostalgia for cats, so I kind of just have to go see what it is. I'm a dog person myself, you know. Yeah. I have I have no connection to cats, so yeah, the musical really. or the, the <laughs> <I> mean, creature. <laughs> they're they're just annoying dogs, really. Mm-hmm. If anything, and they're they're sharp dogs as well. They got those claws. I don't like those. No. I got, um, what do I you got think? another cat's. You got oh, another right. cat steak. Okay, yeah. So I got I got another cat story. Just just general okay. cats, not actually animals. We can cut this too if it's not movie related enough. But I remember like when I was a kid and I. I was woken up at three in the morning, staying over at a friend's house, and there was a cat just standing on my chest, and I couldn't move or do anything because I was afraid of dealing with the cat and getting clawed. So I just kind of sat there wide awake for an hour with a cat on it's my true. chest. It's true. Like if the if a cat's on you, your day's pretty much done. You just give you just give up. You can't do anything. Cats are the superior beings. You know they they rule over us. The Egyptians had that right at least. They did. Um... What do you think of the other trailers this week? We also had Top Gun. Top Gun, that's right. Uh, Top Gun, actually, uh, I guess interesting bit. I remember hearing uh, it was filmed a bit over at the naval base where you know I, I used to live. I used to come from on Whidbey Island. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a little bit of filming there. There was word that uh, you know Tom Cruise was there, and they had um, Miles Teller. That was his name. Okay. Yeah. All right, that was long. Uh, Miles Teller. He was hanging out in the Applebee's at some point. Because that's all. That, that's the only place to go. <laughs> My dad had a little place on Whippy when I was growing up. It was just like a little shack on someone's place. It didn't even have like a restroom. We just had a, we had like our own chickens there, like mm-hmm. Bebop and Rocksteady after the Ninja Turtles. We named them. <laughs> no, it's a it's a great place. Beautiful. The base is really nice too. So I'm not surprised yeah. that they chose that place. I'm just, you never hear of you know place being filmed there, especially just in Washington in general, because there's no nice tactics in you know incentive like there is in la or vancouver, you know Louisiana or, or vancouver georgia all the big places everything that looks like washington is in vancouver so yeah but no it looks like the the new top gun trailer basically looks like mission impossible but you know with mm-hmm. jets and <laughs> so i'm surprised that like the whole trailer was just like tom cruise because you have like john Hamm and you have a I wonder if Val Kilmer will be able to talk. They had to do like a really uh, sad dub over Snowman. Mm-hmm. Iceman, yeah. Um, oh no, I mean over the Snowman movie. He's oh, in that movie okay. and uh, he has like this throat <laughs> cancer thing, so they had to do a really sad dub over him. Okay, so that's just a funny coincidence that <laughs> his character's name is Iceman and he was Snowman. <laughs> He's really been typecasted. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, I'm um, really I mean, it into looks, it though. It looks, yeah, it looks like it'll be fine or fun or whatever. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the original Top Gun, but I mean, you know, you, you get me into IMAX pretty quickly just by having real planes doing dangerous shit. Mm-hmm. I did see that. Uh, um, one thing I found interesting is that someone pointed out in the trailer that the jacket that Maverick's wearing is different than it is in the original film. They've huh. altered it. They've altered it to take out some stuff like uh, certain patches, like we're referring to like uh, Taiwan and other places that would offend okay. the Chinese market. <laughs> but maybe it's probably for the best. You gotta do that now. Um, maybe, maybe it's just you know we're still like totally you know slaving for the Chinese film market, which is very sad to see. I think. Yeah. So you know, it's a it's a shame. I think that we're still kind of you know. 
bending over for the Chinese market here and just going out of our way to try and appease them in any, you know, insignificant way possible. Just as even something small as patches on a jacket, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, and it we, makes that, like, such a focal point of the trailer, too. I mean, yeah, it's just, I don't think, it, you know, they were emphasized in the trailer necessarily, but obviously someone picked up on it, and it's a shame that we're we're doing this, you know. It, it really just does uh, display that Hollywood really just is a, you know, a, a cash machine, you know, and they'll do anything to make all the money they can. Um, I, I like that there's, like, a, well, there's, like, a shirtless scene on the beach, of course, which seems okay, and, right. uh, there's a lot of motorcycles and planes and boats. <laughs> I feel pretty good about it. Well, I don't think it would be a Top Gun movie if we didn't have all those things. It's a checklist. Like, I'm pretty sure the script writing stage was just a checklist of things we need to do again. Can you believe Tom Cruise, like, learned how to fly just so he could do this? <laughs> I can believe that because that seems like exactly something Tom Cruise would do. Like, uh, did you see American Made? Uh, I did not go and see that one because oh. I don't see movies. Yeah, that one's pretty good as far as, like, Tom Cruise and planes. Mm-hmm. He's definitely, like, he's found his thing now, like, you know, these past ten years or whatever. This is what he does now as an actor. He's just pushing the limits of his body, and eventually he's going to die doing one of these stunts, and that will be his legacy. I feel like the new generation needs to help out because we have, like, Tom Cruise and Keanu, like, peaking in, in their 50s. But You're right. Uh, mm-hmm. Where are our new action stars that are, like, outperforming these two? Do we have any young action stars that we're looking forward to? No. I don't think we do. No, I can't. I can't think of any right now. We don't have like our '90s Keanu Reeves right now. You know, we just don't make movies like that, especially either. Right. Well, everything is huge, big blockbuster spectacles now. We can't have <laughs> yeah. like small spectacle. Like you're not gonna get a a Point Break before Matrix. You know. No, and yeah, I mean, you could look at like Tom Holland or something, but then you're like, oh, everything's CG. So what does it matter? Right, you know, we're we're missing out on, you know, and I, I think if we're starting to get a little bit of a backlash with stuff like Tom Cruise, and you see, like, George Miller and stuff, mm-hmm. and then, you know, others doing things for real in the face of, you know, all this CGI doing everything. And uh, Edgar Wright as well, he did that with Baby Driver, you know. Yeah. Just, what was that? Was that last year? The yeah, two years year. ago, yeah. Oh, was it two years? Damn it, I thought it was last year. 2017. Uh, I'm going to pretend I'm right anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't push for Baby Driver though. I love that movie. Um, yeah, no, Baby Driver is great. It's it's a little weak on the the romance plot, and uh, I don't know Kevin Spacey and it's maybe a little uncomfortable now. We're yeah. still kind of getting over that bump, but otherwise, no, it's really great. And you know, I think a really good action. And then Ansel Elgort is actually entertaining as an actor. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> He's surprising in it that uh, he could be. Uh, I guess I I guess I could go with him or. Uh, Taron Egerton, if they want to make like a Keanu run, yeah, and Taron could do it potentially with all yeah. the Kingsman stuff kind of showing promise. But I don't know; he's getting a little older now, I think, as well. He's not like baby Ansel Elgort age. No, um, so hopefully you see something more of that. Uh, and it's weird because they're in, uh, Ansel's in the movie with the Spacey right after that, the one that was like his last movie before the Me Too thing. Uh, go read James mm-hmm. Peace too on the side if you haven't got to it yet. Yeah, about uh, American Beauty. It's a really nice retrospective, kind of putting that all in the thing, especially with American Beauty, because that one's kind of the most, uh, well, this is interesting now. <laughs> right. It's so meta-contextual text- about like, what this means for Kevin Spacey you now. Kind of like, maybe we should have seen this coming. <laughs> it's like between that and House of Cards, we didn't have any idea about this guy. 
Yeah, uh, I don't know. Maybe we're a little naive. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel naive about some of these other trailers. That Picard looks really good. I could get into it. Mm-hmm. That was one I didn't watch. I meant to, but okay. I'm not a Trekkie person, so I'm not. Either. You tell me about it. <laughs> I'm not either, but I kind of grew up with like my family around it. It was always like my grandma's show. So uh, when I hear things like Picard's getting back with Data and stuff, I said right to my grandma. And suddenly, like my grandma's in this hype cycle on the internet that like older people don't engage with. <laughs> it's it's interesting. It's nice to see that kind of revival and stuff. And I, I guess the, the the barrier with Star Trek always has been as well. Like, where do you start? There's like twenty different series, and the the original is not necessarily the best place to start because it's kind of old and you know very different from what we expect and think about Star Trek is now. I think Next Generation with you know Patrick Stewart, you know, and whatnot is probably what I've seen to be the best place to start. But I wouldn't know. Yeah, I'd imagine so. That's what I hear, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it seems like a really cool thing, and I've always wanted to kind of get into it, but just I just don't have time as well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we talk about movies we know about in the box office? Sure. Let's uh, start there. We'll start with the uh, kind of, we can start at eleven here because eleven's actually relevant. It's our other piece of news. We have Endgame still making money, uh, and it did in fact against what we thought it might after all pass Avatar as the highest grossing film of all time. That re-release did wonders for it, so that's nice. Hopefully, Avatar re-releases and takes it back. But uh, I feel like it's—I <laughs> feel like it's silly. Like the internet's uh, talking about like a, which movie should have it or something. It's just like whatever people go see. Yeah, I mean, uh, it makes sense. I think you know that uh, Avengers was going to like you know I said earlier on, you know however many podcasts ago when I first said that I think it was going to that you know it would feel appropriate especially being kind of the end of this 10 year saga building up like it at the time seemed you know like that was the only option that it was going to be the highest grossing film of all time but yeah it did you know Even, and, then, and then of course it waned for a while but now it came back around it's not quite uh the out of nowhere avatar first installment thing that we got that time mm-hmm. so uh, and we still don't know what the avatar sequels are going to bring right. if they ever come out now <laughs> yeah still what a couple of years away from finding out I think the first one was supposed to come 2020, but I haven't heard any more news about it, so I ain't holding my breath. Would be nice. Uh, let's see, but let's get to the actual box office now. We've given that. Let's give a round of applause for Endgame here. <laughs> Congratulations, you did it like we all thought you were. Oh, okay. At number 10 here, we have Secret Life of Pets 2, still barely holding on. Everyone needs to be in a heteronormative relationship, and so do pets. I think that's the premise of the movie. <laughs> Very unfortunate, but it'll be out of the box office next week. Absolutely. Uh, Number nine is Midsommar. So this is one of the next two I haven't seen, so I don't know a lot about Midsommar, but um, uh, Laura has a review on the site, so go read that one. I'm surprised you still haven't seen Midsommar. I've decided to start saving things for October. I go all year watching horror movies, and I end up with nothing new to watch by October. Mm Mm-hmm. Now is the time. We've all on the site kind of started compiling our Halloween list to watch, you know, months and months in advance because that's the kind of people we are. <laughs> Do you have any kind of theme going? No. Uh, I've just started by collecting all the stuff that has been on my list for a while and I've been meaning to get to and I've been holding off on. And then, of course, I always have the big hill of going over that I have a long list of regulars to rewatch every Halloween, you know. I feel like you spend about, like, uh, a quarter of the Halloween month doing those, though. No, I would say more than that. Really? I would say I do. Yeah, over half I spend on rewatching 
stuff because I like watching. You know, that's the time I think of with the classics. You know, and stuff I used to watch growing up. You know, when I was a kid, mm. watching Halloween movies whenever they came around. It, it gets me in the spooky spirit. Yeah, I uh, Halloween Tree is my favorite of them. The Ray Bradbury story that has the uh, it has Leonard Nimoy doing the narration on it. I adore it. Mm-hmm. We'll get to thought- some of those in October, though. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. We'll talk all about our Halloween marathons then. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, more horror here, still hanging on. Annabelle comes home at number eight. I'm actually saving both of these for that month because uh, <laughs> uh, th- these are the only two I haven't seen, and I'm saving them both for October for a specific reason. Uh, this one actually interests me. I've heard some good things this week. That's interesting. I've heard good things about the Annabelle series in general. Like, I'm surprised by that. But Yeah. I mean, I I just keep hearing that it has these twists in it and... Uh, I need to engage with Annabelle a little bit more to find out what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't have much interest, but I'm sure you do. And I know Kevin likes them, right? Yeah, he loves any teen girl, uh, <laughs> teen doll. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm convinced now. Now you've convinced me that <laughs> Kevin is actually a teenage girl in disguise because he loves all these teeny bopper, you know, um, you know, coming of age films. And now he's watching doll movies. Should I suggest there's a reason he won't come on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense. You know, none of us have actually heard his voice. It's all lining up now. <laughs> Kevin's the only staff we don't know his voice. Yeah, that's true. Very strange. All right. Uh, number seven here, we have Aladdin. You want to take your opportunity to shit on it a little more here? Uh, there's nothing in it. Uh, <laughs> Jasmine looks good. Nothing else in the movie does. Uh, Guy Ritchie's not that great of a director. He's over the hill. Uh, he's really yeah. tired. Uh, this movie's really tired. It offers nothing over the animated version. It sucks. <laughs> Good summation. You can read the rest of it in your review on the site as well. It's basically just that written down. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, number six is is Stuber. Which, which is, is uh, the guy, the guy, his name's Stu, and he drives an Uber. Right. That was funny. That was something my fiance told me. She, she cracked up listening to the podcast last week, hearing that, that lear- of your revelation that the reason it's called Stuber is because of the guy's name. <laughs> I mean, it took me a lot to go to, from, like, point A to point B on that. Right, and you just you just thought it was some weird amalgamation of stupid Uber. <laughs> I think that's what it is, right? Stuber? I mean, it, you could have called that, that could have been the title of your review. Oh, I could have. I, I didn't even stay for it just because I had, like, an ear infection and couldn't hear anything. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't seem like a movie worth your time anyway. I, I didn't, no. like, I mean... Watching the trailer for it in the first place came out, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've seen all year. Yeah. And then Cats came around, so. I appreciate Dave Bautista the week before it came out saying that he's not in any bad movies, so he won't do Fast and Furious. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw I saw that. What? And then someone put, like, put a, a collage together of all the really bad, like, what, Escape Plan 2 he was in or something, too. Like he's done any good movies. Mm-hmm. Like, what, he's done the Guardians films, and that's his entire claim to fame right now. But those are such ensemble pieces, you can't say he's, like, the reason for it, you know? No, they're not Dave Batista films by right. any means. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, what do we have before uh, Stuber? Uh, number five here, we have Yesterday, which I'm surprised is still making so much. I guess people just love the Beatles still. I think it I think it worked out for them. It was so, uh, it, it needed such a low return that I, I think this worked out. Yeah, I guess good uh, play from Danny Boyle there, making some money. It's so weird that it's Danny Boyle. I can't get over it because it's like the usual Richard Curtis thing, like that sappy romance rom-com thing. 
And it just mm-hmm. doesn't make sense for him from Sunshine. Well, I don't know. I mean, Danny Boyle is such a um, kind of maverick director. He's done all sorts of genres. He doesn't have a particular style that you can follow easily. He's done horror, yeah. comedies, you know, dramas, you know, all sorts of stuff. Like, he, maybe it's you'd just be surprised. Like, maybe it's just like him being like, I want to do something different. I respect that. Yeah, well, like, if anything, you could easily compare this to, like, Slumdog Millionaires, yeah. you know. Sort of similar in that vein. Very kind of fantastical adventure film. I wish it got a little bit more fantastical, too, because it's so by the numbers, and there's so much fun area to explore that it's really a shame that, like, all the biggest revelations are a guy sitting in front of a computer screen reading, like, a, what kind of rappers still exist without the Beatles and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it definitely, it's a... It's a weak premise when you actually put some thought behind it because yeah. you have to actually calculate what the difference is, and that's not the movie you want to make. You just want a reason to play a bunch of Beatles songs. Yeah, and it does that, and I, I finally come around that it uses popular songs because nobody would remember any uh, of the obscure cuts anyway if they all went away. Deep cuts. You want to rattle off some of your favorite Beatles deep cuts? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I appreciate in the movie that he goes into like a... Elnor Rigby, and he can't remember any part of it. Well, yeah, but that is the best, one of the best Beatles songs anyway, you know, and it's it's a little more complex, like, that's the thing, is that for the Beatles stuff, they're usually fairly simple tunes, you know, and that's kind of where they could catapult themselves from, but Elnor Rigby definitely has a bit more going on. Yeah, you start to feel um, uh, that he's having a conflict with uh, how personal songwriting can be, and what it means to sing it, but I also had this feeling like all the acts of today, anyway, someone's writing all their songs, like Ed Sheeran's in it. Someone's probably ghostwriting everything he does. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's another weird thing as well to kind of think about is that the Beatles are such a huge difference sound-wise from anything we're doing today, our, our current pop music. Like, why is this something people would go nuts for, especially with how simple everything is, you know? I don't know. It, it doesn't make much sense to me. No, I don't think it would make a huge impact with how simple it is. Uh, but then you have to factor out like that we had like a Brit pop invasion in like the 2000s. And you have to take away like all that calculation and be like, okay, but maybe this is still introducing something that uh, wasn't happening in the UK at least. I don't know. This is this seems like a mathematically complicated film that just wasn't very thought out. Again, you just want an excuse to put in Beatles songs, but you had to make this weird convoluted premise to do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have to keep saving things because it feels like it'll be here two more weeks at least. Yeah, just watch Hard Day's Night instead. Yeah, there are a bunch of Beatles movies out on Criterion Channel now, so go do it. Yeah, and lots of great stuff. Uh, here, let's talk about this one you do actually know a bit more about and want to talk about, and that's Crawl number four here. I like Crawl a lot, even though, like, in the in the trailer, it teases, like, the Sam Raimi thing, and that doesn't happen. Yeah, no, I remember hearing about that elsewhere in another review I, I saw. And it's basically, it's it's a huge teaser there, like, oh, come here, we got Sam Raimi involved, <laughs> sort of. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's really the Alexandre uh, Aja, who's a great uh, French horror director. I wouldn't say great, but uh, he made high tension. He knows his way around... Uh, a horse that he has hills have eyes which i really appreciate he did piranha mm-hmm. 3d which is okay manic he, he has some stuff maniac i mean yeah he's got some notable stuff but this sounds like kind of the biggest american thing he's done so far yeah i feel like he really found something here that he could expand off like this is such a really comfortable niche especially in the summer that uh 
he can make these big creature features and he's so at home in it that it, it just feels like the most natural thing for him to possibly do. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that worked out for him and you got a big uh, review you wrote for the site as well. Very nice one now. Yeah, um, I I feel good about it after that second draft. <laughs> right. Was, it's hard because there's a movie like that that you just, uh, it is exactly what it says it is on the box and then you, you, you know, what do I, what else do I say about a, a you know, this alligator movie. All right. Well, that's the kind of tough thing with these kind of reviews. And when you kind of reach this point, it's like, well, it's a movie where people have to escape from alligators <laughs> and, and... <laughs> and the alligators look good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not as easy as you would think to conjure up, you know, uh, you know, three or four or 500 words about an alligator movie. No, especially when it's one that you've seen like kind of before and it's, uh, uh, there's not a lot going on there, but uh, the actors are good. I think it's okay. Um, I like that she's like, it opens with her swimming for the Florida Gators. So you know that she's going to be in Florida swimming with some Gators. That's really good foreshadowing. Right. Well, there's other things you point out. There's like, it, it definitely seems like a kind of cheesy film. You said in the review that at one point she yells out that she's an apex predator. <laughs> I'm the apex predator, she yells it, uh, before she like dives in to swim with the alligators. Because that's what her father always told her, who's played by uh, Barry Peppers, and he always told her, like, as a kid, you're the apex predator, it gives all those flashbacks uh, with that scene, because uh, why wasn't this made, like, in the 90s or something, 80s? Yeah, that sounds like some 90s corny film monster movie shit there. It does. It's like a French director watched those movies and thought that's where we still were, so he made this. I mean, maybe that's nice, you know, I'm, I'm a little tired of the same old, you know, 2019 droll here. Yeah. Let's go back. A decade or two. Because I've watched The Meg five times and I needed this. Yeah, well, you know, more of that Chinese pandering crap. There's none of that in here as far as I know. No, none. Mm-hmm. All right, so, well, let's keep going on here. We got okay. uh, number three, Toy Story 4. Uh, I, I'm thinking about seeing it again, but I'm very hesitant to rewatch this one. Uh, I think I had so much relief that it didn't end badly that I don't really, I don't really feel like going back and lingering on it. Though. It's still pulling in a lot here, you know, each week. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised by that, but it is it is scary how dominating Disney is at the box office now. Yeah, uh, especially this week, I think you could look down this list and uh, nobody else is making a lot of money here. Yeah, I, I mean, let me see here if I can count up well, how top, many I count at least. Top one, three. Two. That's like five, four. five here in the box office because they've got Stuber now as well. Oh yeah, Stuber and then yeah, they have a lot of that, don't they? Yeah, it's it's too much, and it's scary. And it'll be even more scary once they get their own streaming service. It's it's a little bit scary that more than half the movies each week we do this are Disney. Yeah, I, I mean, it feels like I'm a kid again, I guess. <laughs> does it? <laughs> it, does, it doesn't really. It feels like a dystopian nightmare version of my childhood where I'm surrounded by Disney stuff but not in the happy way. No. <laughs> it's like in the way where they all um they all look like your your worst like imagination of what they could be. It's it won't be long before we have nineteen eighty four style Disney facilities that we all work in. <laughs> I know. We're all going to be working on the next uh live action remake of the live action remake of the last movie that came out <laughs> it's a small world after all um, I, don't know. I think they should make a live action remake of the live action remake of Aladdin that would be a good time redo 
yeah. I don't know. Uh, else here, we got you know more Marvel stuff though, which I'm sure will be dominating for a while. We got Spider-Man: Far From Home, number two. It's okay. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't feel anything from it. Mm-hmm. Tyler's got that review, but I think more interesting to talk about now is all the the Marvel news that we got over Comic Con. Yeah, we have Black Widow coming up with the excellent cast. We have what do we have? Blade. Yeah, we got Blade announced with Mahershala Ali as well as I saw. You know, they they mentioned Fantastic Four. They're gonna do. But those two, those two movies were the ideas that grabbed me the most. I'm like, this could get me back into the MCU, potentially. But they're not coming for years. I'm super excited about Black Widow now that we have Rachel Weisz and uh, Scarlett Johansson and uh, who else in there? We got uh, David Harbour. That's going to be a good, that's going to be a good flick, I bet. Mm-hmm. You're probably one of the few people interested in it, honestly. <laughs> so far, I, I keep saying that, and nobody's responded, so I feel like I might be alone. Yeah, I think so. You're going to have an empty theater to go to. All for me. So it's okay. <laughs> uh, I think that they also have the, the horror version of uh, Doctor Strange, which kind of plays into some of the multiverse stuff in this movie, because uh, when Spider-Man slips into like the Mysterio-made multiverse... It feels like a horror movie for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see, but, you know, it's going to be a kind of watered-down horror movie, seeing as it's Marvel. Like, I, I feel like my daughter would be pretty terrified if she saw this section in the Spider-Man movie. Uh, we'll see what they do, but uh, I don't have any big faith in them <laughs> uh, making it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't recall many others that really grabbed my attention other than that. You know, lots of people i don't care a lot lots oh. of disney plus stuff there was the uh the new thor announcement with uh, natalie oh Portman. yes so yes that thing. one yeah and with taika coming back for that we'll see yeah uh i think it'll be interesting i don't know i mean natalie portman's a good actor but she hasn't really had a good track record in the mcu but yeah. they're doing something different with her so who knows what'll be going on i'll say this though uh you know, they got really good on their logo designs, like the Thor, you know, Love and Thunder one there. Looks really yeah, great, very, I like very it. 80s. Yeah, I feel like it's playing into whatever Wonder Woman's doing this next round, so. Mm-hmm. So that'd be interesting. Yeah, because we got a DC lineup as well, but I don't know how much of that'll stick. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman 84, though. Yeah, I mean, Wonder Woman was kind of the big success of the DCU so far, and the one people really clicked with, so. Who knows? Okay, perfect. Um, Let's talk about number one here. In a little bit more to talk about uh, with uh, the new Lion King. It's our one new movie in the box office. This yeah. Week. Uh, do you, uh, you're saying you have a lot to say about it? No, uh, I don't. I, I don't have personally a lot to say. I think it's an, the one that's most interesting to kind of talk about here because it's been kind of waves of criticism and praise going back and forth. Like, uh, you know, in the weeks coming up to it, people couldn't decide if they were going to really enjoy it like they did with the first trailer or if it's absolutely garbage now because it's just, you know, emotionless animals on the screen. Um, yeah, and I feel like... Uh, shit, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. That's kind of how this movie was, too. Um, it felt like going back to my childhood, and I just didn't feel very moved by it. I... I, I feel okay about this version once it gets to Timon and Pumbaa, but uh, the lions on their own don't hold a lot of weight anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't look like it. That's the thing. And I remember, you know, reading Kevin's review as well. He said that the first half really drags until you get to Timon and Pumbaa. Sorry, we just got the Criterion news, and I got distracted for a minute. Oh, we did? Yeah. Oh, okay. New, uh, so I guess we're recording so this. So I guess we should just do our instant reaction to it. We got Godzilla, Showa-era films. 
Yes. Uh, do they have the art up? I gotta look. Yeah, at I'm this. gonna send it to you right here. It's a very okay. pink uh, neon box art. It looks really good. That's cool. Yeah, because we've known for a little bit now, based on other website postings, um, that you know it was gonna be Godzilla. But, um, you know, this is the first, now we're getting it in this moment that this is the actual artwork. It looks really good. I like the, Ooh, yeah. the, the look of it there. Yeah, I'm pretty cool, into but, this. Oh, it, it doesn't look like it's a very big box. It looks kind of, uh, small. You know, it's just um, like regular spine sized, you know? Did you see the, the second image on there? Uh, I'm looking at it. I'm on the site itself, actually. Okay, here. yeah. So, uh, on, 15 can, films, a uh, slew of supplementary supplement material. Damn, this is exciting, though. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, well, I mean, it's a, it looks like a criterion. Like, it's not, it's not going to, like, fill your shelf. Right. Well, it's a, it's a huge, um, you know, thing for these uh, Godzilla fans out there, neither of which we, we are here. We're not big Godzilla people. But, no. you know, I'm, I'm very happy and very excited for the people who are, especially because these are kind of, Movies that have almost been lost to time, in a way, because mm. of the poor preservation of them. I was so curious how it was going to look. and There's no, like, C on the front, is there? It's just the Godzilla in neon, and then all the Criterion labelings along the side in yellow. So it's it's very bright on your shelf. Mm-hmm. I wonder how it looks like. I, I have a hard time believing that, that that's going to be just the box itself. I imagine more of a big kind of... Satoichi, you know, box set yeah. or whatnot. I know. I thought, I thought it was going to be monstrous. I think, I think that was like my built-in expectation was that it was going to be big. Um, yeah. But I don't know. This is this is surprising and good news. Um, and it looks nice. That's the thing is that looking at the art here, I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I should get into the series. Like this is some really nice art, and that's, yeah. that's always what gets me with Criterion's is that they they do fantastic jobs, especially as of late with their artwork. And there's uh, eight Blu-ray discs. They're all differently colored. They look. They're also pretty neon. And then a couple in black. That looks nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm. Yeah, it's it's very exciting and cool looking. And I urge everyone to check it out because it's a kind of big deal, especially for Spine 1000 here. I am glad they did something big like this. Uh, I was getting afraid <laughs> with all those delays that it was not going to be a big deal. We were waiting all last week, and then suddenly the day it was coming out, all we got was like the clue announcement, and that yeah. Uh, that that came out on Blu-ray, great. Mm -hmm. It was it was a very fun time, but very frustrating. I had been refreshing the page like all day, waiting for something. It's like, all right, we're almost ready, and it's like, ah, we're gonna delay till next week. I had a lot to say about Lion King, but then suddenly, like this came up, and I lost all my voice. <laughs> well, uh, Lion King will be around for a while. We yeah. can talk about Lion King, uh, you know, next time. Uh, have you? What's? Do you like any of these Godzilla movies? I, you know, I haven't seen a Godzilla movie. Yeah, I'm gonna say that here. No, not even the original, and I should. It's on. It's on my list. Like I have it queued up on the the Criterion channel. I just haven't got around to it. I haven't found the motivation. I'm not a big rubber monster guy, you know. Uh, I I really liked Shin Godzilla from what I saw of it. So uh, I want to explore that a little bit more. Uh, it's just an episode in Eon Justice Evangelion. If you want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um. In the meantime, though, I mean, you know, we can talk about Godzilla maybe some other week. we got a big one to talk about. We've, we, we've danced around this, and we have a lot to say about this next film, so i got a feeling our podcast is actually going to go a bit longer. Yeah, we're gonna talk about. Yeah, this one's going to be a little longer, guys. Buckle in, because we're talking about one of our favorite goddamn westerns ever now. The Widow. The Land Grabber. 
the outlaw. The gunman. The man in search of a name. A film by Sergio Leone who gave a new face to the West with a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. And the good, the bad, and the ugly. Starring Claudia Cardinale, Henry Fonda, Charles Bronson, and Jason Robards. In a new land. In a new kind of Western. So, uh, you know, leading up to it, like we mentioned earlier, we got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming up this week. You know, big Le- uh, you know, Leone fan, Tarantinoism and whatnot. He named Once Upon a Time in Hollywood after this film, Once Upon a Time in the West, which was is basically the big culmination of everything Leone and the whole Western genre was working on up until that time in 1968. Yeah, and it it feels like it's um, like the impetus for all of Tarantino's creation, as we discussed earlier. Uh, if you skipped yeah. ahead, I feel like a lot of it's inspired by this movie and the good and the bad and the ugly, especially. Yeah, and even you know the other earlier Leone films. You know, it's surprising because Leone made these at least big four hugely impactful films for the entire genre, and he really mm-hmm. only made like six or seven in his whole career. <laughs> he has a real short run career, which is really interesting, and I think also feeds into the Tarantino philosophy of maybe you should only make a few movies. Right. And I don't know if he was like limited by when he started or just what he wanted to do, but really he only made like he made three westerns, one quasi western in Ducky Sucker, which mm-hmm. was also supposed to be named Once Upon a Time. It was supposed to be originally called Once Upon a Time The Revolution. It's a, I believe. Yeah, it's still like the sequel if you give it like a thematic sequel to this film. Right, it was supposed to be kind of like a trilogy along then with Once Upon a Time in America. Right. It is, you know, it is interesting though. But I, I, I still find personally that Once Upon a Time in the West is my favorite of all of Leone's works, and one of my favorite westerns. Just period. Like I, I constantly go back and forth as to whether I like this or the Searchers more. But you know, being being kind of a Ford man, a bias there, I, I tend to default to Searchers a little. Um, yeah, I just feel like it's a, it's nice because there's. Uh, I was backing into this thinking that Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is my favorite, right? But. Uh, uh, like upon this viewing, I feel like they're either neck and neck, or this one's probably got a slight advantage now. Yeah, I think so. It's hard to say because again, you know, I'm I. Good Ben the Ugly is almost as perfect as you can get as well, but so is this. And the the big thing that Once Upon a Time in the West has over Good Ben the Ugly is the sheer scale and thematic depth of it. You know, there this is a huge deal. Like this is the end of the Western genre essentially with this film. It finishes the story that the early westerns start, and you could see that when you're going through like Monument Valley, it feels like uh, okay, here's your bookend. Right. Well, and that's such a great moment. So when we get those first shots, those sweeping shots of him in Monument Valley, it's a, I think, a really significant moment because Leone, you know, he, he's an Italian director. He made Italian westerns, and so mm-hmm. all of those they're shot in Spain. This mm-hmm. is the first time he's come over to the American West, where John Ford made the genre in Monument Valley, and he's paying his homage there. And he's he's finally come. And this is the culmination of that. This is all there, you know, and that's. 
a hugely significant moment, especially with Morcone sweeping score through the valley like that. I think my Western truths are very figurative because I follow a lot of the uh, Italian style and rules. So uh, I think a lot of the implied America works a lot better for me. But then uh, something like this Monument Valley, it's just so clear what the Western means. And uh, it doesn't have to be a metaphor because it's real. Right. You've got that really... Uh, and that's why Ford went back to Monument Valley six, seven, eight times, you mm-hmm. know, throughout his career. It's just, it's it's this uh, enigmatic beauty of the West, this very beautiful open space that you can't recreate in any, you know, California sand pit or even in the big deserts of Spain, you know, that is America in essence. And it feels like, yeah, whatever Ford was starting there, it's definitely the end of whatever that movement was. Yeah, and and again, I think it takes from both, you know, all of the Ford and Hawks and, you know, Man Westerns and all of those big American ones, as well as all of the Italian ones, you know, forged by Leone and Corbucci and all the other guys there all coming together. And, you know, it feels like all of the big influences come to one place. And I think what's another significant thing uh, I want to touch on just real quick, because I think we forget that this is not just a Leone film. Like, Mm. I don't know if you caught the writing credits when watching the film over again. Like, who contributed all to the story? No. So not only did Leone come with the story, but this was a collaborative effort between him, Dario Argento, and Bernardo Berlucci. Oh, I did see this, yes. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's insane. insane. That is a trifecta of Italian legends. That's like a who's who of, like, provocative Italian art. Yeah, and it's insane. They all come together to make this big, grand, sweeping Western epic. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that that would be what we'd call the definitive example of the American genre, the most American genre. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it is kind of interesting that it ends up like one of, if not the best Westerns of all time, ends up being you know an Italian film. <laughs> yeah. But obviously... There's a lot of American involvement going on here, especially seeing as the majority of the cast are all American actors. I'd say of the Italian westerns, this is the most American one. No, I I think that's definitely fair to say, you know. And you especially see that, you know, uh, with the dubbing, I think that's a huge benefit here. Like, one of the big problems sometimes you have Italian westerns is that the dubbing never matches up, and that's because, you know, they don't record any of the dialogue, even in, you know, the Italian uh, language over there. They just have everyone speak whatever then they dip it over in whatever language later it's a nice process but it doesn't always look right in the end (laughs) but when you have them speaking english you know the majority of the cast is speaking english it all syncs up really well like any of the lines coming from charles bronson or you know henry fonda whoever it all looks perfect it's only the people speaking italian where it's like "Eh, it's a little off dubbing for you is is irritating for me it's endearing (laughs) right like if if it's if you're a person who is more, you know, driven to the Italian Western genre, well, you, you accept that. That's an endearing aspect of it that, you know, you kind of go along with that. Whereas I'm obviously more the American Western person. So stuff like that, like it just kind of messes with my, my brain chemistry there. It's a little weird to see and I don't like it as much. But there, there's most of the time, like I, I buy it. It's just, especially in Leone's career, you see it improve with each entry up there. Yeah, and I feel like it's um, something like, there's not very many examples where your own culture gets something from the outside that that feels like a foreign artifact about yourself. Well, it's just interesting to see, especially you can consider all of the influences come up to this point. You know, not only did, 
you know, was Leone influenced by Ford, but so was, you know, he influenced by Kurosawa, as we famously mm. know from totally ripping off Yojimbo for Fistful of Dollars. But, you know, in the same way that, you know, uh, Kurosawa was also very influenced by Ford, and it all comes back around. And now Tarantino, he's off, he's making his westerns now, and he's influenced by Leone, you know, who was influenced by other people. And it's a huge feedback loop of everyone influencing each other and building, building on the mythos of the, the genre here. I think the important thing is that the Western genre isn't totally dead because those influences carry through to every director who's doing meaningful work. If you're inspired by Tarantino, that is a part of the feedback loop. If you're making non-narrative films, then you could pull back to where you're inspired by Ford. Right, and I mean, when we were watching the film together, I said uh, something rather inflammatory about Once Upon a Time in the West. I said basically that every Western after Once Upon a Time in the West isn't really a Western. It's it's a post-Western or whatever. It's something I said, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm going to take this opportunity to clarify a bit more because, you know, I kind of see Once Upon a Time in the West, like we mentioned, as the end of an era here. It's the end of the wave of Westerns, the classic mythological, you know, kind of Western that we imagine associated with Hollywood basically as it exists from the... Uh, point of stagecoach you know which ford really revived the genre and brought things back a new vitality all the way through once upon a time in the west which is thematically all about the end of the genre closing the book bringing everything together and the you know the industrial civilization coming in and sweeping away all of the mythic heroes that's what the whole conclusion of the film is about it's so weird for the end of the uh, hollywood imagination of the west be to be ended by an italian it is. It is kind of uh, funny to think about that way. But I think it, you know, I, I think, think that's, that's why the narrative fits so well that it's unforgiven, right? Because you want you want it to be like Clint Eastwood that ends it, <laughs> right? And he, you know, he had the the opportunity to be in the film from from whatever yeah. as well, but kind of turned it down. I guess he, he was busy the... shooting something else, and he he was going to be one of the three that were in the intro there. Well, that was the idea. Leone's idea was that he wanted to bring you know the three you know with Clint Eastwood and. Uh, uh, blanking on names again. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Van Cleve, Clint Eastwood. But yeah, Lee Van Cleve and Eli Wallach. Eli you know, Wallach. he wanted them to be the three gunmen in the beginning. But I think we agreed when when watching back is that that would have been really weird and kind of odd to see, especially to see them just be dispatched by this this one guy oh, with Charles Bronson's character. But could you imagine if you didn't know it and you wouldn't do the theater at that point and you saw that kind of intro with those three in it? Uh, it oh would, yeah, that would have been. It would be would like be kind of shocking. It's like the explosion of that Mexican stare down or standoff that's at the end of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's like that right. huge explosion of art uh, mixed with like the tension of up close shots, and it's gorgeous. I think one of the weird things with it would have been just like seeing these these characters that were all at each other's throats in the last film, like working together for someone now. Because yeah. that's the idea is that these are all these are all hatchet men for Frank and. That wouldn't that wouldn't make any sense, especially. And I think it's especially for the best because we get some really great Western character actors here instead, carrying on from you know other Western American westerns here. Because we got Jack Elam and Woody Strode as two of the the gunmen here in the beginning, who are very familiar faces in the Western genre. You know, well, I, I what, mentioned to you as well. Okay. Yeah, what stood out to me right away is that we get a shot of the black cowboy, the, the Woody Strode here, which is really yes. interesting. So, and I, I gotta say. I, I want to highlight this section just for Woody Strode because I love Woody Strode. Woody Strode is such a fantastic character actor. He's a presence whenever he's in any film, and he really stands out, and you sense him, you know, throughout. And he's uh, he was very popular. He worked with Ford a lot of times. He started with a little-known film with Ford called Sergeant Rutledge, which was kind of like 
uh, if you don't know about it, it's about uh, a court trial in the West, but, mm-hmm. you know, in the vein of To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, this black soldier is accused of a uh, crime of murdering and raping a woman, and, you know, he's got to be acquitted from it. He plays a big part in it, it's great, it's fantastic. And then he followed it up with being uh, John Wayne's kind of best buddy in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is another great kind of ode to the end of the genre there, yeah. done by Ford. Uh, yeah, he's paired with a lot of the... Um... A lot of the top actors in the westerns and he he has really good parts uh he has a yeah, lot of good supporting parts he's very believable well, as a cowboy mm-hmm. and he stands out as you know another ones he's in like another ford film called uh two road together it's not mm-hmm. so great uh but he's in that he's in uh the professionals with burt lancaster um you know he's got a pretty sizable role in spartacus you might remember him from he's mm-hmm. one of the the guys there but you know he, he was mostly given those small roles as a uh you know, a black actor in the 60s. I do like that he's stuck pretty close to John Rather. Yeah, no, and he, he gets a, in a lot of those, and he's really great to see. And like I said, he's just a presence on the screen, and he does a great job. He doesn't speak a line in the film for Once Upon a Time in the West, but he's absolutely wonderful to watch. He's, he's definitely my favorite of the gunmen. I, I love seeing Woody Strode. Yeah, up until his death, he was still doing westerns. So uh, after dying in 94, he had his last one in 95, so he pretty much committed right. the last part of his life to... Just this genre, which is great. Well, one of the last big ones he did was Sam Raimi's The Quick. That was actually his last film role. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, he's, you know, definitely a Western icon here, alongside with Jack Elam, as I mentioned, you know, earlier. And he's the, the kind of main gunman here with the, the crooked eye, you mm-hmm. know, which is always kind of stood out here. He's, you know, like, he's in uh, High Noon and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He's got small roles in uh, Jubal and Veracruz. When when he goes cross-eyed and he has the flies going over him, he's he looks so grungy and uh, disturbed. Mm-hmm. Well, they do a really good job of kind of making these very dirty, sweaty kind of cowboys, and especially with all these intense Leone close-ups you get throughout the sequence here. Um, we we haven't done a good job of talking about how great this opening is yet, so let's back up a second and talk about that, huh? Oh, we're not done yet, so... I know. I just kind of want to set the stage for it here is that, so, you know, we kind of discussed and said that uh, the, the opening to Once Upon a Time in the West may very well be the best opening of any film. If not, it's certainly in the top ten because it's just this dialogue-free, like, ten-minute opening sequence just of these three men kind of coming in, taking over this train station, and waiting. I think it might be, like, some of my 11 favorite minutes in any kind of film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just... it's surprising how well paced it is and how entertaining it is for just three guys killing time <laughs> waiting for a train to get there and it which is another kind of homage in a way because it homages like the beginning of high noon where you've got those three gunmen coming and waiting around for a train and it feels like it moves to like despite not a lot happening you kind of just want to hang out with them i like a i like a good western that really pairs you down to like the the same pace of these guys that are just like hanging out doing their cowboy things you know sometimes the west is a lot of waiting Mm -hmm. well they do a really good job with the like i said you know picking the character actors here and giving them something to do each one is doing something you know get woody strode's character he's got water dripping on his hat and he's dealing with that you got jack elam's character he's dealing with the fly that's buzzing around his face and then uh the other guy who is less notable um sorry forgetting (laughs) Yeah, he must be way down the credits. I don't know. I do remember, though, that he killed himself during the shooting, which is kind of a mm-hmm. sad thing. And it's, um, but it's one of ahead. my favorite <laughs> openings. I have to say that it's right next to Lay Samurai the year before. Um, 
that movie opens with like the quiet 10 minutes of just like you know like piercing silence that uh i feel like if it didn't happen the year before then it had to happen this year right well it's the kind of opening you'd never get in an american film you know and lay samurai Very... too also like western influence so, uh yeah absolutely um and so, yeah, it's just all all waiting, but very well uh, paced out. And one of the big things that kind of pushes along is that sound design. You know, you focus so much on the effects. Like we said, since there's no recording in Italian cinema there at the time, you know, the sound design is all very conscious. They're putting in each of these sounds, the, you know, water dripping on the hat, the buzzing of the fly, the cracking of the knuckles, and, you know, the windmill constantly going throughout. Yeah. I like that background detail and the sense of place in it because you know, they use like they use over half the budget in this movie just to pay the actors. But I feel like the simplicity of the sets and the way that they're stripped down really works in this. Mm-hmm. Well, when you get like you know they don't have to do all that much with the sets because you know the environment is such a big deal of it as well. But you know it's really again with the the sound design you know it's really great once the train does come in cuz it's like a howling whistle as it pulls up and the tension just keeps building as they seem to have been waiting for nothing and they all turn around and then you get the first big music sting with the harmonica sound when Charles Bronson appears from the behind the train yeah uh, and that's such a good sting too because uh you get that and then you get uh it proceeds into like the gunshots and it all feels so amplified compared to the early silence, the lay samurai inspired like silence at the beginning. Right. No, the the gunshots, of course, loud. You know, the spaghetti westerns are kind of where they started. You know, substituting in cannon sounds for you know revolvers instead, and really emphasizing that you know impact even more so. But it's really great. Like the the lead up there, they got a little good fun bit of banter between the guys there, and then a very fast, very fast shootout between the the, the four men. You know. I think it makes for a good contrast seeing how quickly those go between the, this and like a, a peck and paw western like the Wild Bunch next year, which we did talk about mm-hmm. before, where it's all very long, over the top, you know, slowed down, you know, shots of violence. Whereas all of these are are very fast and it's very much more like classic Hollywood styles, where where all of the violence is just very quick and it's all about the tension of the build up. And it feels like it exists like it within the era of the of like the new wave artists, right? Like it's on the mm-hmm. verge of some uh, the new vogue of the of the French Renaissance and stuff, but then it's pulling into the Italian influences and the old Western influence. So it has that kind of artistic opening that would be uh, not out of place in any French or Italian movie in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Well, and we talked as well uh, between ourselves that you know that that entrance for harmonica you know charles bronson's character there is so great you, you said that everyone in this film gets a, a entrance like a big you know thing like the character introductions are all really great and the one that follows up you know charles bronson's there is is the magnificent henry fonda's here who is this is the most genius thing of the film i think and you know the whole reason uh leone set out to make the film to begin with how do you feel that is uh, the the idea here is that you're entirely casting Fonda against type. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm glad I, I mentioned you. I'm glad we talked about Twelve Angry Men on a podcast a long time ago because that allows us to establish this identity of Henry Fonda as the the Hollywood kind of everyman, the the bastion of righteousness, the most good-hearted, kindest person in the whole business. Because then Leone is able to entirely subvert that by turning him into the most evil, cruel son of a bitch you ever saw in the West. <laughs> and he's so uh, not so physically and sexually threatening in his other roles. 
So it's very interesting oh, not to at see all. that dirty turn. There's that scene later where he's uh, kind of getting ready to uh, more or less rape Jill, you know, in, in mm. the, the house there. And it's so very sexually charged. And he's, you know, it's very weird to see Henry Fonda like that. You're like, this isn't he's, he's like, like Tom Joad at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like ripping off her dress and like uh, he, he looks like an animal. And I love that. I love some of the way that ways that it shoots sex. It feels very French or Italian in that way, too. Like that one scene where it like turns the camera in, um, it has a very interesting eye from like a, like a Romer or Godard kind of eye toward like sex. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very very striking thing as well to make it not not just Henry Fonda, but that he is Henry Fonda. He looks like Henry Fonda because right. originally Fonda, you know, agreed to this and he showed up on set like he had grown out like an evil mustache <laughs> and everything, and he and he brought contacts to cover over his eyes. And Leone said, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that because we need that Henry Fonda face and we need those striking blue eyes. Yeah. Here's the thing is that when that camera pans around to reveal Fonda's face, it's more shocking than almost anything else seen if you appreciate the context of that it's, given it's funny that the person he was. It's funny that his instinct to dress evil was to put on like a brown mustache brown uh, context because uh, something about just shaving it off and you know the cold blue eyes and the, the steeliness of his gaze really sells it more than anything. Well, think about it. You can see a sharp contrast in it with him in the end with the the quick flashback sequence where he's got a big scruffy beard mm. and, you know, his hair's different. The difference in it, like, he doesn't look as much like Henry Fonda there, so you see this more, you know, evil roots more so, whereas now, you know, making him look like Henry Fonda really gives it that okay. extra yep. touch of shock. Uh, I feel like it's good casting, though. It's unexpected for Fonda, and I we talked about it, but I don't feel like we could call it the, the best Fonda performance because it's the least Fonda performance. Right, I mean, you can call it the best if you want, but it's just because it's so different from anything he's ever done. You've got no basis for comparison for it. But that's not to say that it's not. It's a it's a terrific performance. It's a I, great, evil performance. I think something that we talked about, though, is like so much of the acting is coming from the eyes that there's so much more range in uh, Fonda's other acting that he's able to do that the Western doesn't demand as much of him. And he's able to be mm-hmm. efficient well, he- with what he does. Well, that's the other nice thing here is that Fonda himself is a, something of a Western icon as well. Mm. He's coming in, you know, like what well, your other option is, you know, if you're not John Wayne, you're, you know, in Hollywood, you get, you know, Gary Cooper or Henry Fonda, you know, to take over that Western leading role there. You know, he had his plenty. He did his time with Ford as well. He was in lots of Ford pictures together with him, but especially Westerns, he did, you know, My Darling Clementine and Drums Along the Mohawk with him. Right. Um, and I think it, I think it works out well, given him, him an against type character here. No, absolutely. It's, it's one of the, the best decisions made for the film and it works great. And like I said, he does a fantastic job being as evil as all get out. And, and Frank has a really great characterization as well, because he has these ambitions for being like a Morton, you know, the guy he's working for being a businessman of some kind, but he's really a mythic, you know, Western figure down to the end. And that's why, you know, despite everything, he still solves everything with his gun. And I feel like there's a diversity of characters here too. Like it opens with a black person, which says something about it. And then there's also the feeling of, uh, originally it was going to maybe be a woman's story. So, uh, to have such a masculine portrayal, like at the center of it, it's kind of funny coming from Leone. It's obvious what he prefers, but, uh, Claudia Cardinelli is such a main character anyway. Oh, yeah, and it's it's so very, you know, little times you get a female character as your leading Western, or even just 
a nice amount of time respect in a western film we talked about it a little bit when we podcasted about red river and how kind of the hawks role of a woman is and it functions there but this is really one of the big westerns where you have a leading woman like your other options are like johnny guitar with joan crawford or you mm. get like the comedy of cat blue yeah they're with, they're uh, cornball-y though yeah well th- th- that one especially i mean it's just a straight-up comedy and even then lee marvin kind of steals the show you know being dual roles there but this is like a serious western she gets to play like uh you know a very motherly figure in the film this kind of um you know an ushering in of civilization here she's the most civilized character in the film obviously yeah and i i i really like her performance she's really cute in it too <laughs> so there's that yeah. going for it. <laughs> that's something we can't really dance for we just gotta get it out here as now said claudia carnelli is very attractive <laughs> <laughs> She has breasts and a body, and uh, she's a good actress. So. <laughs> I do like me those Italian women, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> uh, she's very nice in this, too. So um, I just end up looking at pictures and just like uh, uh, just like gawking afterwards. So that's what happened. Yeah, you get distracted. Get your attention back here, man. we got to talk about the film as well. <laughs> I know this blown-up picture of Claudia Cardinelli's just turning this podcast downhill really fast. <laughs> What were we but talking no, about? She, yeah, we're talking about the movie. We, she's, oh. she's absolutely fantastic in it, and she does it. She, and she, it's not like she's relegated to like a woman role or anything. She has a very prominent part in here, and she stands up to the men, especially even during those, uh, you know, potential like rape sequences. She's like, you know, you could, you know, call in your men and do whatever. When she's talking to, you know, Jason Robards' character and all that, like she, she's very empowering as a feminine figure in the West. And again, it's, I think it's that great signal of. Uh, change that the the genre is coming to you know that idea of civilization taking over i don't think there's a lot of characters like her in the westerns and i feel like she sets up a type that's that's more available for like julie christie in a few years in mccabe miss miller and uh and not very many other places really yeah no i think that's a very good parallel actually you know not only them both being you know uh who become, you know, businesswoman of a sort, you know, in here, but also just in their power as feminine characters and not having to resort to masculine traits to do that. Yeah, and just how it's acted, you could tell that Julie Christie pulled something of the spirit that uh, that's that's present in here. Yeah, I absolutely uh, agree. I think that's, you know, a very good connection there, you know, and kind of building off of that and shows how much, you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West kind of paved the way, you know, and set the, the precedent, I think, for the remainder of the Western genre. I need to close this picture out so I could continue this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here, here. Pull up a picture of Jason Robards and Stella Cheyenne because we can talk about him next because he, he is a lot of fun in the film as well. I'm less distracted by this one. Yes, he's got nice big sideburns in the film. And he's he very playful. He's he plays kind of the the foil to um, you know harmonica here. You know, and they have a lot of fun banter together. And I think Leone or not Leone, uh, Morricone really plays that up with the, his theme in the film. I the love about theme. this film that, like you say, I I was saying that uh, people just come in with the biggest entrances and they have the biggest music stings and they all have uh, some musical idea provoked to their character that's tied into like a the progression of like their arrival and what they're going to do. Yeah, that's a, a great touch. Everyone in the film has a theme, even someone smaller like Morton. Mm-hmm. He has his own theme that we hear a couple times. But everyone's got a big theme, and they make it during their entrance and whenever they have an important point of plot to come up. And uh, I think, you know, 
harmonica stands out the most obviously because it's got the big harmonica part in it and it's kind of diegetic within the score um you know jill has the nice big sweeping romantic theme that comes up again at the end of the film and kind of close it all out in this beautiful way and then jason robards has kind of the most playful theme you know cheyenne's got the the fun whistly kind of theme that's what they do throughout it here maybe you can play a little bit underneath while we're talking here yeah uh, um, i'd like to put it in it's so nice how it goes from harmonica and uh, it feels like it's detached from the score and then there's like a a bridge where there's a connection and like the bridge reattaches and it allows like some kind of passage over the score while it's like very well audiovisually connected to mm-hmm. yeah, again it's a, a very fun playful especially when you hear it throughout but he's got a lot of fun stuff in the film and i think uh there's actually i bet there would be cool if there was an extended version of the scene where he's got two different sequences where he you know commences some mm. action that all happens off screen one of them being his entrance here where he gets away from his uh you know officer or whatever that's going to take him into prison where you know the whole conflict happens just outside the bar and you hear the struggle with the gunfight and everything and he comes in with handcuffs and that's the nice reveal of that as well when he goes to get a drink and you know he goes to lift up his hands and there's that big zoom in on the handcuffs Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel like the zoom ins are very effective, and I love them in the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I feel like they're very intense here. Oh yeah, nobody zooms like Leone no. zooms, and especially he, in in this film. He has <laughs> such an attention to focus and properties when he zooms in that you could feel the intensity of like what he wants to go for, and it's not just like exaggeration. Like Tarantino will just zoom in, and it it doesn't mean a thing, but uh, it's always like tangentially. A part of the story here and it will mean something also the thing is that tarantino zooms they are they are homage zooms they are yeah. recreating the leone zooms whereas leone zooms are self-motivated they have a purpose to them and often with those intense close-ups and everything like they, they complement them it's not just a zoom up you know we imitate that as the kind of idea of like oh we're evoking <laughs> leone style here but you know there's a real purpose behind the- each zoom the only movie I saw was the the one last year. It was like that really gritty Italian uh, western. Uh, Jesus Christ, what's it called? Something in the gold. Was it? Le- I, I was thinking of Let the Corpses Tan. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. one. Let the Corpses. Oh, okay, that tan. is one. That one uses effective Leone zooms to uh, represent something tangible and metaphorical about its characters. So. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's such a style very associated and unique to him i can't think of anyone who did it before him in in this way at least you know like all the none of these techniques are original by any means but put together it's immediately leone's identity Mm -hmm. and i i think that he does it the best it doesn't even matter if like a i'm sure someone could pull up someone that did like a dramatic zoom before him but it doesn't mean as much nearly as much to what the characters are going through as it does in leone Mm -hmm. Well, especially when it syncs so well with the music. Like, I'm, you know, we, we've said Leone's name so many times throughout, but, you know, we really, I think, between me, me and you, we really love Morricone a little more, don't we? <laughs> I, I think so. I think Morricone is probably my favorite movie person. If I had to... I no, don't, I mean, I'm not as big of a director <laughs> guy as you are, in fact. I, I'm more of a music guy. Yeah, I mean, some of your biggest things, like with the... Uh, you know, recent. You know, you talk about the Phantom Thread score all the time. Yeah, it's as a, well as well as Under the Skin. I mean, yeah. honestly, just look at like my influences, like Under the Skin, Alien, Exorcist, Don't Look Now. Uh, yeah, I think I'm. I think I mostly look for like a score that's audiovisual. Yes, yeah, go score, tone, atmosphere, things. Those are all the kind of things that really you know get you going there. Our friend, and, uh, you know, <laughs> our friend this week said that I'm very into like th- uh, thickly layered aesthetics and films that are like films, which makes a lot of sense. 
<laughs> it is a good way of putting it. But no, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, by no means am I not a music person. I love, you mm. know, Le- uh, Morricone. I love uh, Bernard Herrmann a lot too. Max Steiner. Um, you know, I love. Uh... <clears throat> oh, I, I, I another one I was going to say. Jared Goldsmith, there. There's my other pick. <laughs> but, you know, Leone, or Morricone's got a very, very unique you know, style, and his music is so integral to these films. Once in a lot of time, the West score is one of my absolute favorites of all time. I said, I think I said before, the Taxi Driver is my, my ultimate, which is, you know, Herman, but I think Once in a lot of time, the West is right behind it. I'm very influenced by <laughs> Mika Levy, obviously, in Battle of Mente with Twin Peaks, and then Maricone is my all-time favorite movie person. So. Mm-hmm. Well, he has such a, a variance as well. Like, he has a very specific style. You hear it mm. in anything he does, you know, no matter if it's a De Palma film or, you know, if he's doing the kind of tonal score for Hateful Eight or, you know, The Thing or whatnot. But, you know, it's still very identifiable as a Morricone score. I think that, well, Cinema Paradiso is my favorite of his, and then The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and then probably this one. I didn't realize just how floored I'd be when they went into Monument Valley this time. Oh, it's because it's such a beautiful, like I said, you know, Jill's theme is such a romantic, swoopy thing combined with the the large imagery of Monument Valley. And even again at the end when you get the big train that comes through and everything as the score just, you know, crescendos up. It's absolutely stunning. Some of the most beautiful pairing of music and visual together. And it really captures that scope of the West. Like almost no other film has, I think. And I feel like that's like the image of the West, too. That if you had to capture it within a couple minutes of a film that... You'd show someone that and say that is what the Western genre is about. Mm-hmm. I I absolutely agree. Like you could you could really show them that in the same case. You know you need that big epic feel, which is again why the other reason I love something like The Searchers just as much mm-hmm. because it does have that operatic feel. I think that's the best word to describe Once Upon a Time in the West here as well. Is that it feels like a Western opera. Yeah, I mean this is going into like the time of the Star Wars, and it's a smooth transition into making the western more operatic so the uh civilization could get established and then next step is they go to space so that's like human history right well that's the thing is that you know especially in the 60s that's where you know it was a huge changeover from you know westerns became you know almost (laughs) passe like you you can mark it like the very next year from once a time the west was apollo right (laughs) we went up to space we landed on the moon and that's when we started to put out sci-fi movies. Well, like the same year was in 1968. Not only did we get Once Upon a Time West, but we had that immediate changeover because you get big sci-fi hits like Planet of the Apes and 2001 in the same year there. And it's incredibly time because, of course, Kubrick's already working with the people with like NASA to ensure that they have cameras. <laughs> no, he's like legitimately giving them cameras and framing techniques so when they go to the moon, they're able to frame something. So. Was... Okay, okay. I thought I thought you were going the other route where you were going to say he was contributing to the faking of the moon landing again. Uh, he did actually fake the moon landing, landing, which is interesting because that's why it has like the same kind of camera that's used in like Barry Lyndon and all of that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, him and his NASA hookups there. <laughs> yeah. It is very interesting if you dig in and see that uh, some of the only things shot with the uh, Kubrick's lenses are like Barry Lyndon and the moon landing and, you know. Right. It's, it's not entirely unfounded, I guess, but it's still a bunch of hogwash. I know, and if you watch that movie, by the way, if you go watch Apollo 11, I think it's undeniable. You you watch them coming over the surface, and and you really see what a score could do. But but anyway, we had horses, and then we had spaceships, and we said, fuck it. Yeah, no, it's a very clear difference there, and that's why I think making 
Once Upon a Time in the West, kind of the marker of the end of the Western genre is even more significant because there's a clear drop-off in in mm-hmm. quality and popularity of the West right after that. You know, you, you could say, like, The Wild Bunch the next year kind of is the same deal, but it, it's very different. It's not to say that there aren't great Westerns in the immediate aftermath. You know, like we mentioned, we mentioned McCabe and Mrs. Miller kind of yeah. right after and in 71. I've got, you know, Which some is, other big Western love there. You know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is different, but equally good just it doesn't mean as much to the end of the west yeah no i think we'll definitely get around to talking about mccabe's and <laughs> that was love our, altman <laughs> by the way mccabe and miss miller was our impetus to start this whole podcast so. it it, it, it kind of was it was the first film we sat down and watched together and we're like oh it's a western we both like westerns and it takes place in our washington state here yeah maybe oh, that's interesting maybe we should like meet each week and watch one of these and talk about them maybe that will work yeah that was kind of the kickoff for the whole thing there. And so it was kind of very appropriate for, I think even more so because then it kind of led into a partnership between not only the two characters there, but you know, for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I think that worked because it's about, uh, it's a film about making a company really, because you have that ampersand, (laughs) which implies company. And then we start our own website and it all makes sense that it would come from that. Mm -hmm. all we can hope though is that uh our our fate is a little better in the end we hope Uh, so (laughs) i I guess that does ask though which one of us is mccabe and which is mrs miller i i mean i kind of feel like a whore sometimes (laughs) i do like to think i have the undeniable charm of warren Beatty. so (laughs) you you have frog songs All right, well, I'm going to make myself a prayer oyster then and toast to our, you know, success so far. All right, I'm I'm just drinking eggs because I'm on the sobriety diet. (laughs) Well, it was very great again to talk about Once Upon a Time in the West is one of our absolute favorite Westerns, certainly, uh, and very appropriate given what's coming up here this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with, like, all of Tarantino's filmography. It's going to be a long one again. It's going to be long, especially because we'll have Bro with us here next week as well. This could be even, you know, it's definitely going to be longer than this, but who knows how long. I, I'm not going to bother timing. <laughs> no, I think we just go with it, and if we need to record in two parts, we do that. You know, we just, we work with this. I'll call out of work the next day if I have to. Yeah, exactly. It'll be great. 